Welcome to the Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Sal Marinello. Welcome to the Hot Corner with Coach Sal, episode 155 on our network. And before we begin with Sal, we got some great topics for you today. Again, I want to just thank our subscribers. We have 15,150 plus subscribers as of this morning. Uh, we really appreciate your support. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe on whatever your streaming apparatus is, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Please continue to engage us on social media. We're active on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, several hundred questions this morning because we have a packed end of the week this week with five podcasts that we're recording. So lots of lots of questions. I did answer the one already on, online today. Very, very uh, interesting topic about mistakes and literature. So if you catch on Facebook, you can follow that. And to our uh, to our network of listeners from grassroots all the way to major league front offices, keep the support flowing. We'll continue to bring you great content every week with our wonderful hosts like Sal, and uh, just keep pushing the envelope on baseball and on performance in general. So, Sal, with, with that, welcome back to your show. Glad to have you. I know you got a busy day today with clients coming in, working them out. So the fact that you can make time middle of the day to kind of educate our audience here is fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Well, it's a part of my day, just as any other uh, element of the business is. So I enjoy it. Uh, and it's again, a week rolls around so fast. It's amazing to me. Yeah. And, and the podcast kind of goes fast too. By the time we look up 45 minutes to an hour is gone. So, and I know yours is chocked full of information. So get started. I, I know you and I chatted and I've been seeing a lot of this um, out there in, in the public, in the media, on social media. And I don't really know a lot about it, and so it's good for me as well as our audience. What is what's the what's with the peptide weight loss stuff that's going on right now? Okay, so <clears throat> excuse me, we have this uh, clamor for using drugs to lose weight, and you know we've we've talked about it uh, about these type two diabetes drugs which are being used for weight loss, and there's this push. It was on the Today Show, uh, a public health official basically said that, well, with twice the amount of obese as there are type 2 diabetics, we should be giving these drugs to the type 2 diabetics. I'm sorry, to the type 2, uh, to the obese instead of the type 2 diabetics. Now, I think even the fact that we're relying on drugs for type 2 diabetes is a bad idea. It's the idea we've discussed again, time and again, about addressing symptoms rather than the root cause. We know what the cause of type 2 diabetes is, we know because there's been specific research, not these retrospective studies, which are based on survey information. They have done studies where they have actually fed type 2 diabetics and through diet can totally eliminate the type 2 diabetes. So we know now we can, we can cure, I'll use that word in quotes, we can cure type 2 diabetes through diet, yet we're choosing to treat through drugs, and those drugs are now being used for weight loss. However, there's this new, new, I'm going to put that in quotes because it, this stuff always lurks under the sea, uh, under the surface for years before it springs into the public conscious consciousness that they're using what are called peptides to aid in weight loss. So when I first saw this, Dave, I was thinking, geez, you know, what I know of peptides goes back 15 10, 15 plus years where they're using these substances for performance enhancing measures. And sure enough, when I Googled peptides for weight loss, sure enough, the first 
couple of searches that show up are for these drugs, which one's called CJC-1295. That's like a nice futuristic sounding drug. And another one is this, I I always have a hard time pronouncing it. It's Ipamorelin. I'm not sure where the emphasis is. And then there's several other of these peptides. And Dave, what they do is they stimulate growth hormone production. So a big performance enhancing drug going back, everyone remembers the Ben Johnson drug test scandal in the Seoul Olympics, I believe was 88. He was using growth hormone as well as some other substances. That was a synthetic growth hormone that was obviously formulated in a laboratory. You use this synthetic growth hormone. It had all these benefits. We could get into that down the road. We've now gotten to the point where we have these substances that stimulate the uh, pituitary gland to produce natural growth hormone. So you're no longer injecting a synthetic version of the growth hormone, but you now have this substance which stimulates your pituitary gland to produce as much or as little uh, growth hormone as you need. And they've done research that goes back again. I believe it goes back decades where they've been able to stimulate the pituitary glands of 80-year-olds to produce the same amount of growth hormone as that gland produced when they were teenagers. So there's a big secret to unlock in that. And I believe if we ever get to this anti-aging medication, medicine treatment where it becomes mainstream, it's going to have something to do with that mechanism, whether it's growth hormone, whether it's something to do with stimulating our own production of growth hormone. But so that's where it's being used for weight loss. And the reason it's being used for weight loss is because it makes a tremendous change to your body composition. It adds, not only does it help you add muscle, it also helps you metabolize your fat and get rid of fat. So it's, it's really, if you're going to add, if someone was to ask me what they should use and you're going to use one of these with advisement and go to a, a, a doctor and medical care and all the yada, yada, yada disclaimers, the, this movement towards these peptides sounds like a better idea to me. Yeah. And so, I mean, with every, with good, there's bad. It sounds like it could, you know, provide a faster way to go from point A to point B. What are some of the drawbacks of it? Do, do you know about that? Well, so yeah, so that's a great point. And let's bring that up, Dave. Um, Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the the, uh, Pavloxid, Paxlovid, that was the COVID drug? Well, the litany of side effects from that to treat basically what is now the flu, a mild case of the flu, is the, the side effects are way worse. Now, the growth hormone, let's go, let's take it back a step. Growth hormone has always been used for the sickest, most fragile, frail people that we have in our society when they're ill. AIDS patient, cancer patients, and people who have a growth hormone deficiency. So we're treating the sickest of the sick with the growth hormone therapy, and they're not dying from the growth hormone therapy. So while there are side effects with everything, especially if they're abused, to say that there's some kind of side effect that's going to be a negative that's worse than the 
the, the outcome of being obese and have diabetes is way off base. And, I, you know, to be concerned about, in my opinion, we're at the point where in some circumstances, again, no one cares about the side effects for the, for the vaccine or the side effects about have blocks it. But now we're going to be, I'm not saying you are, but there's a concern for growth hormone. Here's another thing, Dave, for the amazing powers that growth hormone can offer. Again, if used properly and in conjunction with medical care, there are no off-label uses that have been approved by the FDA for growth hormone. So when you look at, I believe the statistic is something crazy like 60, 65% of prescription drugs have off-label uses. So just like we're talking about, one of these drugs is prescribed for diabetes, but you're allowed to prescribe it to lose weight. Okay, 60, 65%, something like that number is approved. You have the approval to use for off-label. Growth hormone is only approved for the specific uses of short stature, growth growth hormone um, um, deficiency, and again, in cases of wasting diseases, which AIDS is considered one, and people who are on cancer medications uh, also get uh, growth hormone therapy in one form or another. So when you say off-label, I think you kind of got to the point. Off-label means it's used for something specific and nothing else? There's not a lot of- Off-label means it's used for other things besides what it's been approved for. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes more sense. 65, I think it's 65% of, of prescription drugs, somewhere in that range. You can prescribe a drug that's meant for high blood pressure for something else, or that's meant for diabetes, type 2 diabetes, for weight loss. Okay. Now, with, with the peptides, is this something you can get uh, get it without it being uh, prescribed to, or you can just get it off the shelf? It seems to be a gray area. Uh, I haven't tried to get them. I know people can get them from compounding pharmacies. You could go do a search online yourself and find that there are places you could buy these substances. Now, these are these are injectable substances. They have, I believe they have oral versions, but in, in these cases, Dave, the oral versions are never as, effect, never as effective as the uh, injectable because the injectable goes right into the bloodstream, goes right to where it's needed. The oral versions need to go through your digestive system. You don't have the receptors. By the time they get to the receptors, it's gone through a series of stages that the, the, uh, the substances get degraded. So the injectable is always the ideal. Yeah. And as, a, as an injectable, does it have to be administered by a, a physician or do, are people doing it themselves? Yeah, people do it themselves. I mean, people take these. Uh, now, a lot of these drugs come in pen format, so they're not actually drawing. But I believe at, at, from what I've seen and I've done some cursory research about these other substances, these peptides, they come in a uh, I believe they come in a powder and then you have to use sterilized solution to mix it to the proper uh consistency. I'm not sure if they've changed that. But again, Dave, I did research on these substances 15, 20 years ago when it was clear athletes were using something besides growth hormone. Because again, just not to kill the the subject, but when, when you were taking synthetic growth hormone, it was very easy for the testers to derive a test to come up and detect synthetic growth hormone in your system. With these uh, peptides, 
the testers had to pick up the pace. Now, there was at least, I believe it was an Atlanta Braves pitcher, I'm going to say at some point four, five, six years ago, that got uh, that failed the drug test for using one of these peptides. So they had to change the test to look for now these peptides and remnants of the peptides because their growth hormone levels would be your own natural growth hormone. So there was no longer the synthetic growth hormone that would trip the alarm, so to speak. So the peptide was one step ahead. Are they are they legal in sports or are they illegal? Uh, I believe they're illegal because they've tested for them. And I know, again, I don't know all the sports, but I know baseball tested for it. And I know a player was suspended for testing positive. Again, I'm good. I'm going to go back and look it up, but I believe it was an Atlanta Braves pitcher, a reliever. No, no one of consequence to my recollection. But, and, and again, the holy grail in all of these PEDs, Dave, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with technical no, terms. No, I think that's good for our audience to know. So, so you have hypertrophy, which is the increase in size of your existing muscle fibers. So – Hypertrophy is what some people think is the goal of training. That means you increase your muscle size, right? Uh, Steroids, the traditional, we'll call them uh, the traditional anabolics, right? They're anabolic steroids because they promote growth. Your traditional anabolics like testosterone and all of the, the synthetics that were used to increase muscle size back in the day were aiding you in hypertrophy. So they were just making your existing muscle muscle tissue larger. So when you stop taking them, those muscle tissue, that muscle tissue would shrink in size. Now, you would still maintain size if you worked out, but it would shrink sub- substantially, significantly. The holy grail has been what's called hyperplasia, which is an increase in muscle fiber. So you're now not talking about an increase in existing size you're talking about an increase in the total amount of muscle fiber someone has. And that's a massive benefit. And I believe it's on order of 10 plus percent. So that's what these growth hormone family of drugs, let's to, to call it something, do for you. They add to your existing muscle fiber. So when you stop taking them, those muscle fibers don't disappear. You now have 10%, which is why I'm on record. I don't I don't shy away from it. I believe most athletes are using one form or another of these type of PEDs and why they're beneficial because you could take them for a period of time and you can make you could still derive a benefit from it after you've stopped taking them. Because you've you you keep that increase in your muscle fiber, number of muscle fibers. Then when when athletes, you know, I appreciate you going on record with that too and saying that when athletes take them, um, I mean, should they be consulting a physician when they do that? Is it, I mean, it's, it's I'm, I'm guessing it sounds pretty intricate. And then or what are, what do you, what are your, I guess, what are the organic consequences that could happen from abusing something like that? If any at all? Well, the, the, the claims are heart disease, blood clots, liver disease. However, Here's the problem. When they they talk about these anecdotal situations of, a, of an athlete who has abused these drugs, they rarely take one thing. When if you go back, I'm not going to name names, but in the heyday of bodybuilding and professional wrestling, where you had massive increases in size, and a lot of these guys have passed, they were 
ingesting a mixture of of a, or a cocktail that was a mix of both growth hormone and steroids. No one was really sure what they were doing. They did stuff on their own. It was all backdoor, backroom type stuff. So it's very hard to say. Again, when you go back and look at who these drugs are prescribed for, even the old school steroids, those were used for all people who had wasting diseases, who were sick, frail, and needed to be fortified. And those people were not dying from those drugs. They were dying from whatever was the disease or the underlying reason. So what's happened is we've, and I don't know if it's been done on purpose, if it's done by ignorance, what the motive is, if it's a combination of things probably is, that there's a lot of misunderstanding, misinformation about what these substances do and the dangers of them. And now, like I said, we've conflated the guy who is using ridiculous amounts, 10 times the amount of the, the recommended dose and using more than one medication or one of one substance on top of another, one on top of another versus using one thing responsibly where you're looking to get that minor increase in performance. So, yeah. So like most things, abuse ends up diluting the real answer. If something could be good or bad, is this, is this relative? I know you said, you know, Ben Johnson, obviously I remember that the Canadian sprinter um, with the, with the enhancing drugs, with the, with the Olympics where he had everything stripped do we know enough about it yet to say this could be a positive for professional athletes? Let's say that, you know, are fully grown, are fully developed. And I know the rigors on the minor league level of playing, but gosh, flying from California to New York to get off and play four games in four days for baseball anyway. And in basketball, same thing. I mean, you're playing four, four days a week and football, a little bit more recovery, but still it's a collision sport. Um, is there enough known about this where, it could be or is being used in a positive way at the next level. Well, I think it is being used. I think it's being used under the radar. I think it's being used, whatever adjective you want to use to describe it. You're not going to tell me that it was being used in the 80s. Dave, this growth hormone was originally being used that was derived from the the pituitary glands of cadavers. So there's been this desire to use substances that are going to make you bigger, faster, stronger, and recover for the, for all time, since sports, since competition, whether it's the military, whether it's athletics. So to, to think, and here's the other thing. Uh, I worked out in a bodybuilding, a heavy bodybuilding gym that had football players and wrestlers as clients. And it was this little hole in the wall that you would never in a million years think these high profile people would come into. But Dave, what made what do you think was the attraction at that gym while you would have this vast array of high level athletes in this little hole in the wall gym? Um from a I guess from a uh I'm, I'm guessing they, you know, a people want to be around a people in terms of talent, but I'm I'm also thinking that something may have been supplied there. Yeah, I think you're na- naive in your first answer. The the first the right answer is your second answer. The 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 facility was in the shadow of Sibagaygi, which was is a big. Well, I don't know if that still exists in that form. It's still a pharmaceutical. The place is still there. The pharmaceutical company is still there. The gym is not. There were people who worked in that facility that were security guards at the pharmaceutical company 
And that was the pipeline. As a matter of fact, when um, one of the popular traditional steroids, when they stopped making it, uh, there was a, a, a fire sale because these security guards were able to get their hands on quantities and sell it to the members of this gym. And it wasn't just pro athletes and wrestlers. There were regular gym rats in there. And obviously it was a lot of bodybuilders. So there's always been this connection between performance enhancing drugs and sports to ignore it is ridiculous. I think it affects everything that's done on the field. We've, I think we've touched on this, if not on this show, uh, when we did the show with the guys, it affects everything more than gambling. The gambling is the third rail of sports. However, since the advent, and let's even be conservative in the starting point, since the advent of Canseco and McGuire and Bonds and Sosa, steroids have adversely affected the sport of baseball. Let's just even confine it to baseball. Has adversely affected the sport of baseball more than gambling ever has or will. Because all of these harebrained workouts and all the other stuff that these guys are doing in the gym that were based on workouts from drug users are still being done. And the the workload is still trying to be maintained. And some of these guys are not on drugs, so they're never going to be able to do it. And the other guys are still following ridiculous meathead workouts. The You could go back to the Muscle and Fitness article with Barry Bonds. And I've said this before, through his trainer that was arranged, I believe his name was Greg Anderson, who was through Balco, he was doing meathead bodybuilder workouts that ruined him. Go back and look at the amount of games that Bonds missed during that period when he was on top of the world. He would have hit 850, 900 home runs if he didn't miss so much time. He was injured. He had elbow, other injuries that were not from baseball. They were from the stupid training methods. So the steroids has done more performance enhancing drugs have done more to ruin baseball than anything. And do you think, so going kind of going back to where we started with this, with peptides, do you think peptides is just the next wave of uh, a damaging drug? Or do you think there could be a positive? Well, it's not, it's again, I don't, I don't believe I, the old school steroids in the wrong, you're giving, you're giving these massive, powerful tools and they're in hands of idiots. The, the, body built, the bodybuilding crowd, the pro wrestling crowd, which has started to bleed, you see a lot of that in MMA at the lower levels. Those are all meathead cavemen, Neanderthals, who their ability, their, you know, I made a joke in one of my Instagram posts is, you know, not everything, you know, based on the whole concept of not everything is a nail, so you can't just have a hammer. But to them, everything is a nail, and the way they approach everything is like they're a hammer with overusing, overusing of drugs, overusing of training and, and wearing people out. So I want to say that, but the, the, if peptides are already the point, Dave, where the average person can get it, I believe, I want to say it was one of the housewife shows or another TV personality, a woman was using it. If that's the level that the peptides have reached, the high level athlete that's looking for the performance edge has probably moved on to something we don't quite know about yet because just of the the lag between when stuff is known in the underground, when it kind of breaks its way into the, the, the common consciousness, and then when that becomes 
common, then they need to turn to the next thing because whether because of testing, whether because of availability, whether because of illegality, you have to move on to the next thing. Yeah, that was kind of what my question was going to be. So as we move from, you know, let's say 1980, I'm sure things are being done before that, but 1980 all the way up to present day, the evolution of the next thing isn't necessarily creating something better and safer, just maybe creating something that's more under the radar and staying a step ahead of the testing. And, you know, we could get into this. So I have, I got to find it because it's, I believe it was the late nineties. There was a panel chaired by one of the forerunners of this concept of what growth hormone could do. And they were dealing with the ethical issues of it because by all indications, it's very safe when used properly. So, they were, they were wrangling with how do we ethically handle this when we don't necessarily have the tools yet to control how it's distributed. So, again, this is going back. I'm going to say it's a good 25 years that growth hormone has been recognized as a substance that has a great deal of potential to do good. And it's amazing to me because with all of the pharmaceutical companies' ability to push their agenda on the population that growth hormone has not picked up that same kind of critical mass where when you look at it, I think, and you try to look at it neutral, it's very hard to come up with the case that it's, it's a bad thing, especially in light of all the other things that have been approved with way less scrutiny. So I'm not looking at this as bad. I'm looking at this as, and here, here's my example, a football player, takes his life, especially, and let's talk about the NFL, a pro football player who's at the top of his uh, profession and is um, an adult, they, they take their life into their hands at every step they take on the field. Look at, look up, look at kickoff, kickoff return. That is a life or death. I don't care what anyone says. I'm not being hyperbolic. Uh, That is a life or death situation on every play. So, do you blame a guy because he wants to do something that's going to make himself bigger and faster and stronger and recover better, especially when you know that they're treated like disposable parts of a machine? To the point where they're talking about they're putting grass in these football fields for the World Cup, but they're going to keep artificial turf on the field for football players. And the football players are saying, well, wait a minute, you're so worried about artificial turf causing injuries on the soccer players. So you're going to put grass in for the world cup, and then you're going to go back and put in artificial turf for us. So do you blame a football player for wanting to take an edge to do something that's going to keep his hormonal level where it's supposed to be to keep himself a hundred percent? That's the question that everyone needs to discuss. I think. Yeah. I think that's the debate always, you know, that end does the ends justify the means and it's hard to argue you know, and these, these guys always, I mean, they, they, they're aware of what abuse will do to them. I mean, I, I would have to think they'd look into it and you've seen the special Icarus, right? The, uh, about the, the cyclists taking the performance enhancing drugs. Well, I've, I've read a lot about it. I mean, yeah. uh, from Tyler Hamilton's book to yeah. the Lance Armstrong situation. So yeah. I mean, they've, chronicled the potential what happens to bodies with the abuse and it's you know when they when they know that and they go in um you look at the salaries that are being thrown at these guys for peak years and all they have to have is one um it gets kind of it gets kind of scary at least you know 
I grew up, I grew up and actually played professionally during that era and never took one, never looked at one. Um, honestly could say never, never even saw one really. And even the, the greeny stuff never did that as well. I was always concerned about just one little twinge to my body or my mind. And again, I'm, I get asked all the time when I speak, people, kids will ask, they know the era I grew up in, I played in and I kind of joke cause I'm five ten, you know, 170 pounds probably. And uh, that's about what I played at. And I, my joke back to them, if I took any of that stuff, I should probably get my money back, don't you think? Um, you know, with, yeah, with the- but, but see, that's what a lot of people rely about, rely upon as they're pleading in, innocent, innocence, because, again, I'll make the case a high level pro athlete. And I'll, I'm just going to say to you, if the difference between you making the majors and making double, you know, 10 million plus dollars was taking a, a clinically approved dose of uh, approved medication that someone who was on their deathbed was going to take and it wasn't going to kill them, but it would make you better, would you take it? I'm not asking for that answer. I'll tell you right now, my answer would be I would take it. My yeah, answer I mean, is if you could give that to, a, to a, a patient who is sick to the point where they're feeble and this is going to make them less feeble and possibly allow them to recover well i'm certainly going to take it if i don't have those other physical problems so this we could i would love to have this discussion the problem is i think in this area is people want to have a a a a pat answer that it's bad and it's stupid and it's cheating and if you do whatever it's it but but that that doesn't get us anywhere because it's we it's a, it's a, it's hypocrisy to an incredible level when you look at how much pharmaceuticals and medications are part of what we do in our day-to-day life and already in pro sports guys get injections to be able to play in a game so why and why is this other subject so off limits and substances off limits yeah no i, I i'll answer I, I i would probably side with you on that and my at the time I was playing, I knew stuff was 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 going around. There was so much unknown on my part that I just just kind of turned away and didn't get involved. And the biggest fear I had, honest to God, is you know ever trying something without the proper guidance and and uh, you know professional backing, like you said, from the medical community. But trying something and it being deemed cheating and having to face my father and mother—that was my bigger fear than anything else uh, to say that I cheated. So I just kind of didn't even look into it at all. But I agree with you. I mean, you know, if someone said, hey, you can go from double A to making millions of dollars and set yourself up for life, it's it's hard for any person to look somebody else in the eye and say, I wouldn't wouldn't give it a go. So. And I agree with you 100% about your the, the thing that kept would have kept me. So see, when I was doing it, Dave, it was still in the dark ages and it was still really back, back room stuff. And it was scary, the people that were involved with it. When I played college football, I would say there might have been one or two guys I had a thought of because I remember both coming back to my local gym, the gym I mentioned, and noticing, holy cow. You know, I was always a naturally strong guy. I remember coming back and thinking, geez, that guy was benching two and a quarter before I went to school in August. And I'm back at Thanksgiving and he's going 350 for reps. And then by the time my brother went to college, he played a couple of years. He he feels there was three quarters of the guys on the team. And then at that point, you were starting to get guys that were having hamstring injuries, all these injuries. 
all the classic signs of the abuse. So I didn't have as much access to it. So that really was my barrier for entry. If I had grown up 10 years later, it would be completely different. And I will say now as someone who's 60 and has still never done anything on either the recreational side or this kind of PED side, I think about it all the time. I would love to be able to get up and I always joke to my clients, I can do things in brief periods of time and then I either need more time to recover or I'm banged up. I would love to be able to get up in the morning and not feel the way I feel. And then once I get going, I feel fine and I can do my workouts. But it's a tempting thing at this age to think, you know, if I could do that and this is a medicinal, uh, a clinical approved dosage and it's going to make me feel better and allow me to do other things that I, I'm hesitant to do, I I. I, I would love to try it, but I'm hesitant, A, because of the price, and B, because I think it's that inbred, I don't want to say it's guilt, but it's that inbred hesitation that somehow we have from whether it's school or parents, a combination of the two. Yeah, the generation of, yeah, it's put your head down, work more than you're asked to work, do it the, you know, the old-fashioned way, the lunch pail and the hard hat. I'm with you on that. Um well, speaking of lunch pails and hard hats, you and I were talking about uh, a different kind of training that, ironically, we both had done in the past and around this sledgehammer training that I saw and you had it on Instagram. And what's what's that all about? It was born out of something I got into, I'm going to say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. There was this concept of dinosaur training that was Again, it was not a um, a mainstream at the time that involved doing things that old time strong men do. I have uh, in my facility, I have a bar. It's based on this legendary piece of equipment called the Apollon's axle, which was an old train axle that this guy was able to use as uh, his workouts. This uh, bar, it's like a two inch thick bar. It doesn't spin like the Olympic bars that we use in the gym that everyone's familiar with. You don't realize <clears throat> what that spinning mechanism on the bar does to make it easier to do certain lifts. So this Apollon's axle, two-inch thick handle, doesn't spin. They had all kinds of things with sandbags. We do sandbag training. Well, the sledgehammer kind of come out of that. It wasn't part of the dinosaur training per se. It was something I kind of stumbled upon in another realm and just got into it. And it's as simple as you could be. It is what it is. You take a sledgehammer and you have either a tire or a stump. What I use now is I bought a loading dock bumper, which you could get from Amazon for about 55 bucks. The sledgehammers can be anywhere from like low 20s to maybe almost 40, depending on the size and weight. And you just go out and you whack away. And it's a kind of nice way to not have to coach, not have to be aware of your own technique. It's just grip it and rip it, as I say. Unbelievable for your overall conditioning. Anyone who's familiar with high-intensity training, your heart rate will get higher in the sledgehammer, with the sledgehammer, than it will doing almost, it'll get higher quicker than doing almost any other thing I can think of, even heavy-duty intervals on your uh, Airdyne bike. What's what's a typical workout, sets, reps, time? How would you administer that? Well, I start with people. I have a six-pounder. That's the lightest one. So for someone who's really smaller, not as 
strong. I'll go five five reps per side and just see how they tolerate it. I'm, I'm always a big start slow and, and you could always add. For most people, like if a kid comes to me, I have, uh, in, if you look on my Instagram, I put a compilation together of all the, my different kinds of clients doing it. There's a freshman in high school. I think he might've been even coming out of his eighth grade year when he did that, able to handle 10 and 10, you know, hardy kid, 140 ish, 135 pounds. So anyone of that kind of size and stature can handle 10 and 10 with the six pounder. It's amazing what the jump to a 10 pound sledgehammer will do barely, you know, half, barely twice the weight completely changes the effect and that's it. 10 and 10 rest. And then when you feel like you're better at that, when your heart rate comes down, you could go 10 and 10 twice. So you're really doing 40 in a set. And I combine it with all kinds of things. I combine it with body weight exercises, push-ups, lunges, body weight squats, put it in a circuit with a whole bunch of different exercises. I will do a set of the sledgehammer and then maybe do one of my explosive coordination moves. So I kind of mix and match it. And then there's days where I just do the sledgehammer and I'll do sledgehammer, jumping jack, squat thrusts, rest, repeat. Nice day. Go out in your backyard. You could set it up anywhere. The other day we had a, a, a 75, 80 degree day here on Tuesday. I brought it to the field, did sets in between my running drills, my sprinting drills. So there's a million ways you can do it. And and you got to get away. People need to get away from the structure. Go out and do it and feel it. And you can figure out for yourself the sets and reps. Yeah, so you can go get a sledgehammer for, you know, 12 bucks at Home Depot and an old tire and, and get to work on. I shared with you a little bit of a workout that I did as a young kid. Um, and it'll kind of lead into the the next thing as well. I had a wheelbarrow, uh, 88 baseballs, my batting tee, and then my two bats and my sledgehammer. And we had the baseball field right around, right behind our, our house. So I'd go over there and wheel it over. And every time I'd put my wheelbarrow out there, my dad would put a cinder block in it. And um, after I did my 88 hits righty, 88 hits lefty, and then I would just keep going until I got done done uh, taking swings. Why 88? That's how many baseballs I had. Um, and then I just keep going lefty righty. But the sledgehammer, I think... Um, I would have to break the cinder block and I would do, you know, as many reps as I could as a lefty, then I'd go righty and I'd be, my job was to break the cinder block into as small pieces as I could and bring them back home. And he would use them in parts of landscaping and whatnot and drainage and things like that. To it sounds like child labor to me. Yeah. Well, it was, it was sold to me as if it was going to make me a better switch hitter. So I think in retrospect, yeah, I think I was tricked into becoming uh i would think i was tricked into helping with the landscape and that's old italian for you well but- i think i think your dad was 100 percent right and we've talked about the concepts of specificity and how specificity transfers and sometimes that gets confused into people thinking you have to replicate the exact pattern in the gym that you're trying to perform that you use in your in your endeavor your sport and I think that's that's a mistake that a lot of coaches, a lot of people that do what I do, that's a mistake they make. What I always, how I describe it is you're trying to develop traits that will help you do the other things. And I think the sledgehammer, especially if done properly with the, and by properly, all I'm saying is that the lighter weight with the high speed is perfect because it is a completely different movement pattern from swinging the bat 
swinging a golf club, shooting a lacrosse ball, but it encompasses skills, elements of those skills that you need to be good at. It, it, it's rotation. You get uh, muscular endurance. You get power endurance. There's ways you can change the technique with more bend in your legs, less bend in your legs. You could change the way your hands are. You can square up to the thing you're hitting, or you could stand with one foot in front of the other and kind of have a rotational start. So you're not just rotating as you're coming over, but if your left foot is forward and your right foot is back like a righty batter and you're coming over the top with the sledgehammer, you can change the emphasis, but keep the speed up. This Keeping that speed up is the important thing to have it transfer and not be a detriment to what you're trying to do on the field. Yeah. We had another device in our backyard for years. My friends thought it was a, a tire swing because we had a tire hanging from the, the tree. And they always wondered why I never swung on it. I had no idea that's what other kids did, swing on a tire. But uh, we would use it to hit. So we would have the tire hanging, and it was a full tire. And our job was to, it was kind of simulating hitting inside the baseball, and it would spin it around. And I would do that 20, 25 times until it got tied up. And then I'd go on the other side and, 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 and hit it the other way, right-handed. So... That was another thing I thought. We'd do it with a stick. Wouldn't use our bat, maybe an old wooden bat or, or a stick, but it was another way to, to get stronger without doing traditional weightlifting. Yeah, and you're in the in the realm of what you need to be work, what you want to work on, what you're trying to get better at, right? You're not doing it off of a weight stack and going slowly and being concerned with how much weight you're lifting. You want to swing freely like you do in the game. So Yeah, built my forearms up tremendously and – Help me learn a concept to accelerate through the ball. Yeah. Um, more of that and less bench press, squat, deadlift in baseball. Yeah. Well, talk, talk a little bit about, I know we're, we're getting close on time. And um, you, I had mentioned wheelbarrow and you, we were talking a little bit before some exercises, some training that you did in the past, but something that you're probably going to incorporate uh, currently with your workouts involving a wheelbarrow. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to the concept of, of, of just hard work. And not having to coach every element of every lift because so much of what I do, there's some in intricacy, just like there is with with the baseball swing, to use that as an example. You want to try to have it be simple so you could deal with the complex issue. But sometimes it's just exhausting to always be doing workouts based on that. And I have other things, more traditional style, closer to traditional style that address that. But the wheelbarrow we used to have, so I used to have the old Poland spring jugs that used to be rectangular. They were great because they were thick, right? It was not a square. It was more of a rectangle. And I would fill it with either road salt or sand. And I had several different weights so that all kinds of people could use it. People who were lighter, people who weren't as strong, people whose limbs weren't long enough maybe to, to wrap it around like you would need to that might, or maybe you could use grip work to just handle uh, grab the handle of the, the nozzle of the bottle. And we would do simple things like lifts with that, sandbags, but we would also put stuff in a wheelbarrow and have people push around the block. Now, my old facility was perfect because it was mostly flat, but there was this kind of incline that you really didn't notice until you had something like this that you were trying to move up it. Even if you were walking, it wouldn't be as noticeable that there was this incline. And I don't know what it is, Dave. It was this amazing connection that people would get to where they would want to do the wheelbarrow all the time. And it, it got to be funny because we were on a block where there were two banks, a salon, a nail salon, a restaurant, a 
a financial services company. And then it was also on a kind of a main street. So people would, we were very visible. Where I am now, I'm kind of in a commercial light industrial area, not much traffic. And we got to be known for this kind of crazy training because we have the sledgehammer stuff outside on nice days like we would get in the spring and summer. People wanted to do stuff outside. And we, I'm not talking about, Dave, athletes. I'm talking about stay-at-home moms. I'm talking about older retirees. I'm talking about men, women, kids. Everybody wanted to do this kind of training because it made you feel good because you felt like you were accomplishing something beyond a number of a weight on a stack in front of you or dumbbells on your hand, you actually felt like you were doing work. So that's one of those things I'm getting back to doing a little bit of because I've spent so much time with the technical aspects of running and exercising and doing all the things. And the sledgehammer has gotten such a great response that I'm going to bring this other style back a little more. I think it'd be great because we talk about, you know, multi-sport athletes. Uh, We talk about different ways for kids to get balance and strengthen their bodies in a, in a real traditional way. And that a lot of times lifting doesn't put you in that athletic position. You've made that point. I mean, every single show, I hope people are paying attention that there are certain exercises that have become mainstream in the gym that just do not promote the type of athleticism mobility that you have as an athlete. So this sounds like it could be something that hopefully catches on caught my eye. Well, what it does too, is it, you know, I, I know there's, I know myself before I, morphed into, you know, looking into these other, uh, other ways of training to improve myself. I still felt if I did work around the house or in the yard, did, did a lot of construction, light construction stuff. I never felt capable, even though I was in quote, good shape from the gym. And as I got into my twenties, thirties, forties, and now beyond there's stuff I can do better now. And my, my cardiovascular system from a standpoint of never feeling winded is better now than it ever was. And it's because of these overall type exercises where, you know, grip strength was always measured as a marker of fitness as the population ages. So the sledgehammer, the wheelbarrow, picking up things that are very difficult to handle, the fat bar has a a benefit beyond the grip, but the grip improvement is a manifestation of that other work you're doing. So again, that's why, you know, I think that's why they say gardening is such a healthy activity because of the up and down, you're carrying bags of mulch, you're using the rake, your upper body's involved. You're doing all these things that increase your heart rate in a manner that's consistent with actual, how we actually have been evolved to move. Yeah. And I know you mentioned gardening. My, my older son, Blue, I talk about Tanner a ton in there, and I mentioned Blue sometimes. He started doing landscaping as kind of part-time jobs around the community. And when I was going to get him the electric hedge trimmer, he said, no, I'll use the manual one because it helps me with my forms for baseball. I feel like I'm working out. And uh, 100%. So I give him credit for thinking about that. I was going to do the easy way out with the electric stuff, and he he likes to do the the, uh, the old school way. So said it helps out. He said, it's like, it's better than lifting for me because he walks away and his forearms are burning and, and it feels like he got some stuff done for his sports. Absolutely. Yep. So, well, we're, we're coming close on time. Anything else that you want to share with our audience? Something we didn't touch on that, that you want to make sure that gets out there? No, I think we overloaded today, but what, what I would say is the stuff, the discussion we had about these performance enhancing drugs and this next generation 
of substance, whatever it is. We're, again, we're at the point now where these peptides are part of the general consciousness where you could go in, Dave, when I typed in peptides, the first thing that Google filled in for me was for weight loss. And I had never searched that before. So it's obviously something that's out there. Let's not look at things in such a black or white way, especially again, we're being, we're, we're having substances pushed on us by our public health officials, our medical profession, our quote celebrity class that aren't in our best interests necessarily. And there certainly is enough reason to question how good these things are for us. And yet we have this other column of substance, which seems to have a lot more good than bad that's being demonized. So do your own research, look into it. And uh, I think down the road, we're going to see this kind of treatment be more involved with, with us as we get older. Yeah. I mean, that's what we, and that's, that's great advice to everybody on all of our shows. And, and today we're talking specifically with the hot corner with coach Sal, you know, don't, don't trust us, do your own research, do your own homework, um, challenge what we're saying and, and uh, communicate back with us. We'll certainly get back to you guys on And Sal, how can our audience continue to support you? Where can they find you? I'm on Twitter. I'm doing a little more Twitter these days. I'm at Sal Marinello. That's all one together. And I, as I've mentioned, I'm using my Instagram as my website because I think it makes sense. It's Coach Sal's Playmakers. You could see what I'm all about there. You'll see a great example. I've been going a little sledgehammer crazy lately. But again, it's a great mode, uh, modality to train. And then you'll see some of the other stuff I do. So really, that's the two, those are the two best places to keep up with me. Yeah. And then uh, for our audience, our faithful 15,150 and growing, continue to support us. Whatever your streaming choice is, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, you can find us. We're hitting grassroots all the way to Major League front offices. So that's a broad audience, uh, 71 countries right now. Um, I don't know how much we can, more we can grow there. I, I'm pretty happy with that number. So we'll continue to satisfy your wants and needs too. And then you can find our group on social media, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Um, hundreds of questions this morning. I did get one online. I'll get back to everybody by the end of the day because we have a backloaded week this week with five shows recording in, in two days. So we'll get these out there uh, right away so you guys can soak up uh, all the information. And with that, Sal, thanks so much for what you do for our programming and what you do for your particular show. It, it really hits home with our audience. Love it, and I can't wait to get to next week. So thanks, Dave. Sounds good. Okay, and to our audience, have a great day, and we'll get back with you tomorrow with our next show. I give you 